the thrill of that alone was like just as cool as kicking in a door and entering, right? It was just this weird connection. It was different, you know, it was a different way of using my mind, using my, my creative side to entertain people. And, and I get just as much of a thrill from it. And then I landed the Mayans show while I was out in LA. I see all this stuff politically. I was like, well, let me just tell my story as a border patrol agent. And maybe, maybe that'll bring light to a lot of questions that some people don't. Cause I see the arguments happening. The goal is to hopefully, you know, explain the career field that people don't understand. The career field that's been demonized about a horse whipping that was not true. The concentration camps and things like that. It's like, it, it's all false. It's all just narratives. It's all political arguments left and right. It doesn't matter who it is. It's the most humanitarian career field that we have in America. It saves more lives and it stops more drugs than any other agency in the nation. Welcome to Mic Drop, the podcast where relevancy is irrelevant and we don't give a shit about your feelings. Well, it gets even deeper when you start talking about the cost of all that and you start talking immigration. Yeah. Then it's like even crazier. Which is a great segue into... Yeah. So you left that. What what made you decide to now want to get into Border Patrol and, and go that route? You know, Bar, uh, Sergeant Barraza, Sergeant Ricardo Barraza was the one of the gentlemen who was killed that, that day in the military. And uh, we had a conversation beforehand about what we want to do when we get out. And I thought about doing firefighting, right? Like my dad, right? Like my brother. And um, he talked about Border Patrol. And I was confused, but I was like, dude, he's he's Hispanic. Why would he even want a Border Patrol? I didn't, didn't, you know, I wasn't educated on any of it. I didn't even know what the career field consisted of, but I just thought it was odd. And he talked about the special operations of the Border Patrol and how what they do uh, is very similar to what Rangers do, but in, you know, in country. And I was like, oh, shit, that sounds badass. You know, so I thought about it for a while. I even, I even applied for a test and just never took it because I just kind of got the job at the prison. I was like, I'll just stick with this for a while. Uh, once the prison kind of got weird, I was like, yeah, I don't see myself doing this for 20 years. Uh, let me jump into let me jump into something different. I was starting doing firefighting stuff. I was applying for fire departments and I applied for the Border Patrol. Eventually, um, I landed the job. and still very, very like ignorant to what the career field really consisted of. But I knew that it paid well. I knew that it was a federal job and had a gun. I knew they had special operations teams that I can chase. And so I did it. And so in 2009, uh, I got into the Border Patrol. I was stationed in Texas in Del Rio sector. And, uh, yeah, and then pursued that for a while. So early on, I mean, you go through Fletzy in Georgia, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we did Fletzy in uh, New Mexico. Okay. Um, your, your, was your first duty station was Del Rio? Yeah, okay. it was. What was the, the first, you know, I'm, I'm assuming there's, I mean, I've had a few different Border Patrol guys on, like there's a, um, not an introductory year, but there's a probationary period. Yeah, kind of two what? years, two years probation. I yeah. did, uh, the one year probation, I did one year probation and then I got activated in the military. So yeah. I got fortunate enough to, to get activated and kind of burn out that one year time as well. So by the time I got back from that activation, I was already considered a journeyman. I just had to pass a few tests. Yeah. That first couple of years, um, what, what was your, again, kind of expectation versus reality? Like what, what did you, like when you got activated, you'd, you'd been a border patrol agent, how would you have synopsized how you looked at it at that point? Yeah, it was tough, man. It, it's tough being also Hispanic doing that job, you know, um, being a regular border patrol agent in the field, uh, it was all about trying to apprehend as many individuals crossing, right? And so I kind of knew the job was going to be like, I didn't realize how exhilarating and how also how, how gut-wrenching it could be 
because the one side of it you're taught, you know, to stop them and no big deal. And in, in, in one essence, you know, they don't even have a soul to people. It's just like you just catch them, apprehend them, and just, just process them. But when you see eye to eye, you see, you know, the struggles and why they're coming across, then it gets like a little emotional invested into like, fuck, this is crazy, man. And I'm going to do my job. Like the, the, the military side of me was always like, hell yeah, let's do this job because I want to protect our country from, from uh, future events like 9-11. That's like the heart of what I, like I want to do this job because of that. Yeah. And that's why I was like the gung-ho army ranger tactical dude was like, fuck yeah, let's save America. Let's stop. Let's not allow the next big terrorist attack to happen. So that's what I was highly motivated on. And that's what I was doing. But then you start to apprehend some individuals who's like a mother carrying a child. And you're like, well, shit. I don't know if that's really a terrorist right there. You know, and so then it feel bad, right? The empathetic side of me and, and also remembering my roots and who my, my grandmother came across to, to, to live in America. And, you know, she did it in her way. And it wasn't necessarily the most legal way possible. She actually took the identity of her her sister who was an American citizen, you know, and so she, she stole the identity of her sister to become a citizen kind of thing. And so, like, I, I, it wasn't hard for me to think about my own background and, and feel feel bad in a sense for it but as well as like i have to do my job kind of thing so that first year was the eye-opener of all that it was was apprehending illegals who come across and and try and stop them and tracking and all the cool stuff it was the introductory to the border patrol and all the facets of it as well as stopping dope and drug smugglers from happening any any big uh big finds or catches for you that you know any anyone is 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 in in del rio at the time you catch anybody's, it was a success because we didn't have a lot of traffic, right? Right now they have, you know, 11,000, I think, you know, coming across in the past like seven days or whatever it is. But like you would be lucky to have five in a day of a full 24-hour period, you know yeah. what I mean? And so like anyone you can apprehend was like, dude, you're doing your job. You're doing good, you know? And so that's really the job is day in and day out is just trying to look for it and look for it and look for it. And then eventually... You find it during that uh, probationary first couple of years. Were there any terrorist watch list guys or like Chinese nationals or anybody that you're like, whoa, wait a minute, what the fuck? Yeah, th- there's there's always that. You're gonna find one or twosie here. You're gonna get you know here like, hey man, we got a guy that's from you know China. You're like, what, dude? You got a guy from Africa? Like they call exotics, right? Because it's not often. Mostly it's anyone from South America. You know from. I mean, all the way down South America, all you can think all the way up to Mexico, right? And so those are common. You got, they call them Mexicans, right? So anyone who's from Mexico, then you have OTMs other than Mexicans. That's everyone else south of the border of that, right? And then you have exotics and those are like Brazil. Those are like China. Is that the actual terminology that border That's what we use. use. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And this is use, this, this really terminology wasn't created from us. It was actually from, from trafficking organizations. That's the terms that they've used. Oh, wow. Yeah, they, they identified it that way and that's how they actually determine how much uh, they would be charging for these type of people, like the distance okay. of where they're coming wow. from. Is there a scariest person that you guys caught? Like one that you're like, huh? You know, I, I think in, in the moment of catching anyone, you don't even really think of it until you start rolling fingerprints or you start taking out the shirt and kind of identify who they are. And yeah. then you see, like, oh, the dude's a model right? Yeah. These guys are known for being bad dudes. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's, there's guys who are part of a cartel and they're trying to get away from the cartel because yeah. you know something a, a deal didn't go the way they want it to yeah. and this is common right yeah. and then there's also just a dude coming over to farm yeah. you know yeah. um all right so during that first two years uh kind of intro to border patrol agent yeah. and then you get activated what was the year of activation like 
Uh, I got activated to be a drill sergeant. Oh, no shit. Yeah. I was a drill sergeant. How was that? It was beautiful. Yeah. Was where, a, uh, where at? In Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Wow. Yeah, so I was a drill sergeant for four different cycles, and then uh, the, I finished off my time as a combative instructor out there, uh, helping a lot of the drill sergeants get their le uh, level one, level two certification. What are the two key components for canine success? That's effective training and proper nutrition. Fueled by Team Dog brings those two components to your family and best friend. The perfect nutritional balance that results in a higher mental acuity, energy, overall vitality, and even an improved appearance. Every product you will find in my company's store was born from the battlefield and not from the boardroom. Let my life's work help you become your dog's hero. From the time you joined the army, I know you said you did jujitsu for a year prior. Obviously, there's some combatives in Ranger Battalion. Yeah. Uh, outside of the military's combatives and, and things of that nature, did you uh, train in, in any gyms? Or? I've, I've always maintained like my boxing proficiency and started doing a little kickboxing. I competed while I was in active. Well, I got active. I competed in the combatives tournaments and everything. And then um, just after that, I just took on jujitsu a little further. Uh, I never really belted anywhere. Like just right now, I'm going to start trying to belt because I'm actually stationary yeah. somewhere. But no, I competed. I used to manage fighters and everything in Texas and all that. So yeah. I just stayed involved in the in the fight world. My yeah. father's like a famous cut man in boxing, so I've been around the boxing world my whole life. Yeah. And so now it's just I just kind of transitioned to the more of the MMA and jujitsu space. Yeah. Um, drilling. Any cool stories from being a drill instructor? Oh, it's just the whole job is cool, sure. man. Yeah, yeah, you're teaching these guys to to get ready for combat, and it yeah. was a it was a beautiful time. I was ready to get back to being a border patrol agent, you know, because I, I landed the career of a lifetime. You know, I was ready to kind of, I was waiting for my chances to try out for special operations, and I knew once the deployment ended, I can get back there and start doing that. Is that what you did? You yeah. So you went back. Uh, so you had you went back, and then you had another three or four years that you were there, right? Yeah. So I got back um, after the two years, and I was able to try out for special operations. And I and there's two different special operations in the border patrol. There's uh, BORTAC, which is the tactical team, and there's BORSTAR. BORTAC is talked about pretty often. A lot of people know who they are. BORSTAR doesn't get talked about too often. BORSTAR essentially is like the border patrol's version of a pararescue jumper. <laughs> Excuse me of a pararescue jumper, right? So we are shooting medics, you know, shooting medics that focus on, uh, you know, what, what Borstar stands for is Border Patrol uh, Search, Trauma, and Rescue. So we do a lot of search and rescue. It originally started from search and rescue. originally started for, like, a lot of uh, illegal immigrants who are coming across and getting injured or dehydration issues, and then as well as agents as well. Yeah. When you're on the border, you're about two and a half hours from definitive care at some point, right? And so you might as well try and teach people how to be medics for our own people and as well as for any kind of immigrants that come across. And so when Borstar was established, it was more of like a search and rescue team, SAR team. Uh, as it continued to grow and evolve, it turned into a search and rescue team that also did TAC medicine. And me being former Army Ranger, I kind of taken to that uh, to that side, and that's why I wanted it. I was like, you know what? I don't want to be a... I don't want to be a door kicker anymore. I want to try and be a medic. You know, my heart's calling me to be more of a medical side. And so uh, I, I joined the, I went to selection for the Borstar uh, team and it kicked my ass. Did you go straight there from being a drill instructor to? No, I did like probably three more months in the field. Okay. And then I had to, and then I had to, uh, I tried it out. Then you had to sign out paperwork. It's just different, but yeah. you had about like three more months and then went to the, to the selection. So when you say it kicked your ass. Does that mean you didn't make it? Oh, no, I made it, made it. But it's the first time in my life that I felt like I would quit. So, 
Go ahead. You no, know, it was a selection that I didn't expect. You know, you've been through selection in the military. You, I've been through selection in the prison system now. I've been through several courses in the military that were just like kicking the nuts. Yeah. Didn't expect Department of Homeland Security to have anything like that. Yeah. I was actually kind of laughing like this is going to be fun. You know what I mean? Um, and then you get there and realize like, oh, shit. They kind of like copy the military but didn't have the same parameters involved. <laughs> they just did whatever the fuck they wanted. It yeah. was kind of like... For me, it felt kind of like cowboys, just creating a selection course and just crushing nuts and trying to get people to quit. What was the hardest part about it? You wake up every morning, you run from three to five miles to seven miles at times, and you swim for about two hours every morning. And so just your body breaking down, that was hard. And then it was just like this. You wake up in the morning, so you do your PT test. If you pass the PT test, cool, then you get into the selection. When you get in the selection, you wake up, it's PT for the next four hours. Two hours of freaking swimming, two hours of freaking running. After that, then it's they teach classes, but it's impossible to stay awake. So as soon as you fall asleep, they pull you out of the class, and they dust you off for a fucking 30 minutes, and you go back in the room. You do this this whole time. You're getting very little meals, right? And then at the end of the day, they, they kind of put you to sleep by <clears throat> by dusting you off again, right? They have a thing called Wheel of Misfortune. You spin it and you, whatever your exercise is going to be that day. And then you go back into your room and you have a long list of impossible tasks to do. So you get no sleep. You're getting dusted off every day, physically, mentally, emotionally. And then you got to continue to do this until the day they say you, you graduated. So physically that was more challenging than being a ranger? Well, it was physically because I'm 27 now. My body's not as, not as, you know, and yeah, I finally, I think it was day seven, my knee was starting to really cause pain and uh, we're running on the beach. We're running next to seal dudes because we did it in, in Coronado. Right. And it's like just intimidating in itself that the cadre, I think is trying to show off yeah. <laughs> and yeah. we're running and they're like, I was a number 83. They had numbers, right. And they quit 83. You're falling behind 83, the whole thing, right. Yeah. Every cadre. Right. And uh, I actually was questioning like, man, I've already done this type of shit. Why am I, why am I beating myself up? Yeah. You know, and my knee is killing me. Like, I should just fucking quit. There's got to be an element, too, that going from being a drill instructor in the military to the, <sighs> the flip-flop, like, polar opposite, yes. like, that's got to be hard to... It's hard because I quite, I, I, I was a pretty... I'm a good drill sergeant, man. Like, yeah. in that one year, I received two Drill Sergeant of the Cycle Awards. Like, I know what I'm doing, and I understand, like, how, you, how to train. And I'm watching them, and I'm like, I know what you're doing, dude. I yeah. get it. I yeah. get what you're doing. And but you like, suck at it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, like I, I got it. But, but uh, no, man, I was... it. It was uh, a good time for me to, like, I'm glad I was able to shut it off. I was able to shut that thought in my brain because I was like, fuck, I don't want to sit here and get yelled at. I don't want to punish my butt, my dudes because I'm the last in the run. Yeah. I don't want to, you know, you know, the whole things they do. Yeah. And uh, somehow I was able to kind of pull out of that and, you know, get through the rest of the course. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's surprising to hear. I mean, I've, I've, again, I've had a few different Border Patrol guys on, a BORTAC guy on. I, I know that, you know, I think it's almost like there's a, there's probably a little bit of a chip on the shoulder. Absolutely. You know, to where it's like, we want to be even harder than the mil- military guys are like, you I know, agree. I think I, part of me, cause I've, I've been through all that stuff. I'm like, uh, I think that, what I think is that they seen all these military shows and they wanted to create their own version of it, but they didn't realize that there's like parameters to it. There's like, yeah. uh, you know, there's a, there, there's a book, there, the method to the madness of it. Yeah. And they kind of just went, just full on balls to the wall. Yeah. And, oh. and I think, and it's all good, right? It's all good. I'm glad I got through it. You yeah. know, how, go ahead. No, no, but I, and the next year I became an instructor. Oh, no shit. And I revamped the whole oh, thing. That's yeah. cool. How, uh, how long is the selection or was it when you went through uh, it? It changes every, every class. It could be from 23 to 27 days. Okay. Uh, did you change that 
when you came in? No, or? that they, we kept it. We kept it like that. You have to kind of. You don't want to give them the exact days. Just kind you. of guessing game. Yeah. But you know, there's more safety mitigation involved in what they do now. Uh, I think that's continued to evolve since I left. Yeah. Uh, I introduced the tactical medicine program early on. You know, the goal for that was to everyone's a border agent already. So if they show up to selection, let's introduce them to tact medicine because it's something that's going to be going you know across the board. You're going to improve the force no matter what. Yeah. And so we started introducing tact- tactical medicine because a big part of my time, uh, me and a, and a handful of others were were trying to bring together Bortac and Borstar in a more kind of like cohesive unit because before my era, there was not a lot of medics attached to Bortac. Bortac yeah. didn't respect the medic side of things as much because it was kind of like they were search and rescue dudes. They, yeah. they, did, they, they worked on people's feet for blisters. Yeah. And so there wasn't a respect to the special operations community. Uh, eventually, it started bridging the gap with more military guys. And then when I came on board, I kind of helped kind of solidify that a little bit more. And then a couple of dudes behind me as well. It just kind of kept, kept turning into like, oh, fuck, our medics could be tactical dudes too. Yeah, I and, gotcha. Yeah. Um, all right, so the selection is 23 to 27 days. Uh, how long is the training after that before you're an actual Borstar dude? When you graduate there, you're a Borstar dude, but you have to pass your EMT. Now it's changed. Now you go through EMT program, and you can't even get your Borstar until you get your EMT. Okay. So with the EMT portion, pass your national registry, boom, you're a Borstar agent at that point. Okay. Uh, from that point on, you'll do concurrent training to just kind of to meet your medals, essentially. Um, but from, from day one of me being a Borstar agent, wearing the cool uniform, it's like a t- cool day different uniform uh when Borstar is not doing search and trauma rescue missions or whatever the case or 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 assisting in a tactical environment we are out there searching for lost individuals so what happens in the border is at night most of the illegals they travel in groups at night and then during the day uh they kind of hide out right because it's too hot to travel sometimes the heat is going to be 110 118 120 in in the texas heat and so our goal is at night if they got scattered at any point they usually tell us in the morning and say hey there's two groups scattered one here one here this range and this range so what we go out there and try and find those scattered individuals because if you don't within hours they're probably dead and so in in i think this summer alone it was like 120 something no in in there was 240 something bodies in the del rio sector were were found dead jesus just this summer holy shit yeah that's that's how that's how many people die in the summer because of the conditions and the reason why is because they get scattered they get scared that's all it is and the coyote or the the person who's smuggling them assisting them as soon as they see any trouble they just leave them you know, they just cut, cut sling loop, I'm out. And so our job as Borster agents were to go out there and start tracking footprints and trying to find them. Like they give us a coordinates to where they were scattered. And from there, we just go out and try and find as many as we can. And yeah. you come up on sometimes dead bodies. Sometimes you come up on dudes who just need IVs at the time and boom, bring them back to life and get them processed. Yeah. It's a, it's a problem. There's no two ways about it, which uh, I definitely want to get into here in a minute uh, in terms of kind of your, your position and opinion on it and, and how to fix it, et cetera. But before we do that, I'm curious, uh, how many students went through your, your class in Borstar? Uh, I think like it started. Yeah, I think finished. it started with like 150 something students and we graduated, I think, 20. No shit. It's just like a selection, dude. Yeah. It's like, it's exactly yeah. like a selection. Which do most guys quit? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's not, Same it's thing. not they fail or whatever. No, it's no, it's a, it's a quit. They wake up and say, no, I'm good. Is there a, a hell week kind of period where if you've made it to this day, most people make no. it? So it's the, the attrition. Yeah, I think, I think the last five days you feel it let up a little bit. 
but I think they also tune it up just because they know we feel that way. Yeah. But you almost get into the routine of it, like, all right, you're going to fuck me up. All right. I mean, so, I mean, having gone through it and also having been an instructor, is there a, a point at which people stop quitting or are there people quitting like up until the yeah, last Yeah, I couple? think usually, you know, after like the 12 day mark, you know, the people that quit after 12 days is usually just injuries. Yeah. It's usually injuries. After that, it's like the first. The first like ten days are just kick them in the nuts, sleep deprivation. Well, there was there was sleep deprivation. There was like all the just the PT tests, right? But as well as like all the bullshit games you play. Psychologically, dudes just don't want it, right? Yeah. You know, like, like fuck this. I'm gonna yeah. go be a border agent. <laughs> yeah. Um. Sorry. So you graduate, uh, Bor Star. You go. You get your EMT uh, certification. How long did you do the actual job before you went back as an instructor? It was within. I did probably about seven months in the field, and then right away they're like, "Hey, the next course is coming. We'd love to invite you as an instructor." Is that normal? No, it's abnormal. No, it's because of my background with with the tactical side, all the stuff yeah. I had in Ranger Battalion. Yeah. Because I was an infantry student and knew the SOPs. By chance, one of the guys who who wrote the SOPs for Bortec was a was an Army Ranger, a Second Bat Ranger who used the same SOPs in Ranger Battalion, and so I know those same SOPs. So how do you clear a room? Right? Boom, yeah. boom, 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 boom. And so um, when I got to when I got to the selection, they wanted me to add that to it, and then I kind of revised all the little things that I thought we can probably improve. Yeah. Safety mitigation was my biggest thing. Being a drill sergeant, that's all I think about. You know yeah. what I mean? And so um, as I kind of started doing with that, it kind of changed how they did this, and, and it's continued to evolve. But yeah, the introduction of 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 tech med became the, one of the most important things in my selections that I ran. How would you compare the tactical proficiency of Bortac, Borstar to military special operations. I think they can compete with the best of them. Yeah. Hands down. Yeah. And, and I've said that publicly and people are like, bullshit. Like, you say that, but no one knows about Bortac and Borstar the way that they should because no one's ever written a book on it. No one's really, really highlighted them. The last two major escape convicts got caught by who? Bortech. Yeah. And they had a Borstar attached. That's yeah. what we do, right? Yeah. And so, like, they don't realize the proficiency of skill sets of what they have. Yes, they have not gone to combat, per se, but the training is just as high class as anything else. The funding is there as yeah. well. And so... So in terms of their ability to shoot, move, communicate, clear rooms, all that, it's on the level. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. On the level with 2nd Ranger Battalion's kind of SOPs, but Rangers as well. But, like, I, they can go toe-to-toe. -to -toe. I think with CAG would be, like, respect. Yeah. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Like, I, it's my, I think DEF group would be, like, respect. That's yeah. how I feel. I feel like they're that good. Wow. I mean, that says quite a bit. Do you know how many about how many Borstar agents there are? Oh, shit. That's a question I never thought of. Um, I will bet active. So active Border Patrol agents is under 19,000. 19, so I'll bet there's somewhere, man, somewhere probably in the 300 active. And Bortac even fewer, right? Yeah, yeah. probably. They're going to be around the same number, kind of say. Um, because what you have is SOG is our special operations group. That's our dev group. That's yeah. our... SOCOM. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's our SOCOM. And then every sector has their, their localized special operations unit. So it's like their immediate response teams that are the, the level, the yeah. same level. Okay. So those are called special operations detachments. Yeah. So... Del Rio has a special operations detachment. They were the ones who activated to, to uh, Royal Elementary School yeah. right during the whole shooting, yeah. and that was SOD Del Rio SOD. Now, if it's a national issue, they activate SOG. If it's a world issue, they activate SOG. Yeah, I was SOG. I, I transferred to SOG one year later. Okay, I'm assuming. I mean, Bortac spends more time training 
tactics than yep. Boar Star. Correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, because Boar Star, we have a proficiency <coughs> of shooting, but unless you're a tech med specialist, yeah. you don't get involved in the shooting as much as Boar Tech. Yeah. Because Boar, that's Boar Tech's mission, yeah. right? But me being attached to Boar Tech as the tech med specialist, now I'm in all their missions. Yeah. Okay. And I do all their training. So I've done everything they've asked. Yeah. Your remaining time within Border Patrol as a Boar Star agent, um, after you left being an instructor, uh, how much time did you spend? Probably about a year and a half on the team. Okay. Uh, what was that year and a half like? Man, uh, just working with Bortec side by side as their medic, um, doing their training, being a part of their missions. Was, was, it was like being on the Ranger Battalion again. It's like being on any other team you can think of. You know, we're, we're locked and loaded and ready to go at any moment. You get a call and you go. And it was freaking rad, man. It was the best time of my life. The problem was that my personal life was falling apart as well. Yeah. You know, I was going through my second divorce. Uh, my kids, it just started to realize how much more my kids needed me going through my second divorce. And I was like, what's going on here? You yeah. know what I mean? That was falling, that marriage was falling apart. And rightfully so. It was just, it was nothing healthy about it. Yeah. Uh, it was more of like circumstance. She really helped me with my kids at the time because I was a single father of four kids. Yeah. And so it was just like, I, I think it, it just became a comfortable situation that ne didn't need to go any longer. Yeah. Um, but working as a federal agent, yeah. it's impossible to kind of like be a single dad of four kids. Yeah. Were you stationed uh, in El, El Paso? El Paso. Th that whole time once you came back? Yeah, on. SOG. Once I, El SOG stationed in El Paso. And so once I got the transfer to El Paso, I just stayed yeah. there. As an instructor back in San Diego? Yeah. Uh, no instructing. We, we, so the the selection course moves wherever wherever we wanted it to, and so we did I think two in Coronado, and then it jumped over to White Sands or something. So it's wherever, and so I was instructing at White Sands for those okay. for those next two three years. Yeah, okay. Uh, that last year and a half that you were operational uh, in the El Paso area, was there any wild stories of uh, shit that you did? Yeah, that's uh, you know the big story that that people talk about and still talked about today was the two escaped convicts in new york in 2015 uh keith uh, matt and sweat you know who that is the yeah. remember that yeah so i was on that team oh, um, and i was the medic for that team and um the reasons kind of me leading to getting a walking away from the career field was kind of that mission i was preparing for my daughter's birthday at my 10 year old at the time she was turning 10 i missed every birthday between that and probably caught two and um going through this you know relationship issues life just kind of hit me like damn man what am i doing i should try and be a better dad right now you know um so i decided to throw a big party for her and um was ready to throw this party in a couple of days and boom we get activated the call for the two escape convicts and i'm like all right well then we go on the mission you know again i'm turning my back on the family for the mission which is what we do right um, I'm on the mission with these guys for seven days and we, 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 we do air ops, we do boat ops, we do everything you can think of tracking and everything, every kind of Intel that showed up, we did everything we could to try and find these dudes. And after about seven days, it kind of was a dry hole and we felt like, okay, well, we're not getting any Intel. We'll, we'll just redeploy back home. Um, and I asked if that we were going to stay the weekend and then redeploy just in case something popped up. I asked if can I just ship home? Let me, let me go home my daughter's birthday. They said, go for it. And so when I flew home for my daughter's birthday, they're got Intel and they're boom, they're on, they're flying on to go try and find these dudes. Cause they just got new Intel. Mm. It was a, like a trailer was broken into. I'm a home. I'm doing this luau party for my daughter and I'm cutting up some vegetables and I asked my dad to turn on TV. I saw that it said board patrol agents caught one of the dudes and shot and killed them. And I was like, fuck, boom, my phone rings. It was my team leader. 
And I was like, you got to be fucking kidding me. He goes, yeah, dude. I was like, fuck. He's calling me to be proud. Like, dude, we did it. And I'm, I'm thinking in my head, like, I fucking missed it. Yeah. And the medic that I'm supposed to be for these guys wasn't there during an engagement. And like, how fucked up is that? And you would understand this. Like, how does that feel? I felt like I just turned my back on my team. I felt like I was fighting with who do I want to love more. And, and that call broke my heart so bad that they had a half-invested medic because I'm trying to be a good dad. Yeah. And there was only one answer for me at the time was to resign. And I resigned two weeks later. Wow. As you guys know, back in the service, uh, I used to dip. And uh, it was a, a ritual that myself and a lot of my teammates enjoyed. Uh, what I'd like to talk to you today about is Black Buffalo, which is a tobacco alternative that is fantastic. If you still want the ritual, uh, but you don't want the tobacco uh, included in it. And they've got a bunch of different flavors. They've got wintergreen, mint, straight, peach, blood orange. Uh, it's edible green leaves. It's food-grade ingredients. There's no tobacco leaf or stem. They have a nicotine version and a nicotine-free version, as well as long cut or pouches. Uh, so they pretty much have whatever you, your preference is as it relates to both flavor and uh, blend as it relates to that. So uh, it's been a fantastic product, um, and it's one that, you know, again, I, I really enjoy the, the ritual of it. Uh, it makes me feel like it, it's, you know, kind of nostalgic throwback to being able to pack a fat dip after a meal or cleaning guns or whatever. Uh, and it's something that, uh, you know, I, I really, just really, really enjoy. If you're 21 and older uh, and you use nicotine or tobacco, please check out the award-winning tobacco alternative, Black Buffalo. So if you want to get in on the uh, Black Buffalo ritual aspect, uh, go to blackbuffalo.com. You can use the promo mic drop. Uh, all one word mic drop at blackbuffalo.com uh, for 20% off your first order. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. I also want to talk to you real quick about a product I've been using for a long time, long time sponsor and supporter of the show, Mudwater. Uh, got rid of coffee, switched to Mudwater. Uh, it tastes great. I like to mix my uh, Bub's collagen and, uh, and MCT oil powder with it. Uh, a little bit of vanilla drops, and uh, it's fantastic. Um, it's got a host of different ingredients. There's cacao and chai for a hint of caffeine and kind of a hot chocolate-type flavor. There's lion's mane for focus, cordyceps to promote natural energy, and uh, both chaga and raishi to support a healthy immune system. It's Whole30 approved, 100% USDA certified organic, non-GMO, gluten-free, vegan, and kosher. Uh, they do donate monthly to support psychedelic research, and they have since day one. Uh, go get your free frother and free samples of coconut creamer and sweet sweetener. If you go to mudwater, M U D W T R.com forward slash Mike, uh, on that link, you get all the samples, the frother for free. And that's mudwater, M U D W T R.com slash Mike for that free author, uh, free frother rather. So it's a great product. I've been using it for a long time. Uh, don't get the upset stomach or the jitters with the tons of caffeine and coffee. Uh, and it's a great vehicle to add uh, whatever other supplements you want to throw into your morning routine. That's mudwater.com slash Mike. As you kind of wrap your time up operationally uh, in Border Patrol, um, you know, th this is the turning point of wanting to get out. And then did you did you have a, not necessarily a plan, but an idea of wanting to get into kind of the Hollywood scene or, or how did that transition take place? And then also how did, did deciding to write the book, where did that weave in and, and yeah. why? 
Well, like I started, like when I was playing college baseball, I was trying to just get decent grades. So I took two years of theater mm. and it was just like an easy A. And I uh, didn't think anything of it. Just like it was cool, but um, baseball was kind of my priority. And then in 2013, when I moved to <clears throat> El Paso for SOG, um, just met up with a couple of buddies and you you know Matt Best, right? Oh, yeah. So we started doing YouTube videos. And when we did those YouTube videos, you know, I, as much as it was fun for all of us, there was something deeper for me. I was like, shit, I remember theater class and how much I liked it. And uh, what can I do? How do I pursue that? So we ended up producing a film, right? We produced a Range 15 film, which is just kind of a quirky, goofy-ass film. But um, just filming that was, for me, was cathartic in itself, man. I was just like, this is crazy. What, like, what I can use my mind to entertain. <laughs> I can hold it in. No, you're good. And so... It was different, you know, it was a different way of using, like I said earlier, like using my mind, using my, my creative side to entertain people. And, and I get just as much of a thrill from it. You know, when they say camera, it says action. I, the thrill of that alone was like just as cool as kicking in a door and entering, right? It was just this weird connection. And uh, as, you know, we started to grow as a, as a group of doing things together, uh, I kind of knew I wanted to try and step into the real acting space at some point. And um, I started to pursue that. I kind of stepped away from the group and kind of did my own thing. And produced another little film about, you know, post-traumatic stress I did on my own, me and another veteran filmmaker. And then uh, I started doing improv comedy stuff in L.A. And at the time I was in L.A. Uh, like stand-up shit? Uh, more like sit down and just bullshitting, but comedy. Yeah, oh, okay. like we were we were improving about our kids in the parks. It's a, it's a YouTube series called Dads in Parks. And I helped kind of write a couple of those concepts. And, and we sat there and just kind of BS, but it did really well. I mean, it did so well that AMC gave us some money to, to do more for them for before the previews of a movie. Oh, so it was like my first kind of like, Oh, this is actually working, you know? Uh, and then I landed the Mayans show while I was out in LA and right place, right time, right look and enough, enough acting ability to, to land that job. Yeah. I, you know, having watched, uh, some, some of them and, and some of sons of anarchy, uh, that whole like kind of subculture of of biker gang and and the California different cliques of, yeah. of bikers and whatever is fucking fascinating, man. I, I yeah. love it. Like it's yeah. it's really fucking cool. I mean, what it, that seems like such a, a neat experience. Yeah, it's um, man. I can't even tell you. It was. I'm 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 extremely fortunate that it worked out the way it did. I'm still involved in the Hollywood scene and hopefully can continue to make it a career of mine. Um, it was. Wow, they did it for it's a total of six years, like five five seasons we did. But I was on I was on the show for six years, and midway through the show is when I decided, to, like, I just midway through last year, I decided to write the book because all the stuff politically that's going on. Yeah, I was like, well, eventually, I'm, I've already written a couple of scripts on the border stuff, yeah. right? Because I'm hoping to eventually create a show. Um, and then I see all the stuff politically. I was like, well, let me just tell my story as a border patrol agent, and maybe maybe that'll bring light to a lot of questions that some people don't. Because I see the arguments happening, you know. And even in LA, while I'm filming the show, people are talking about immigration and doing, a, and their lack of really understanding and knowledge of it. I kind of felt like, man, they really don't know how this works, right? And yeah. so I just kind of felt compelled to like tell the story of what immigration really looks like and what the career field of border patrol because border patrol as a whole was getting demonized and, and politicized and, and it was kind of unfair. Yeah. And since I'm in the heart of like LA, everyone there was just giving border patrol hell. And I'm like, wait, I was a border patrol agent. And how do I, how do I tell that story in a way where people would like actually read it? Well, let me just write my, my book. So yeah. that's what made me write the book. Yeah. 
It's fascinating, and I, I want to kind of dissect some of it uh, just before we do that, just having talked about the mind stuff. A couple of just kind of out of curiosity questions, I guess. Um, is, is there um, the reality that you guys depict um, from a, like a technical advisory? Like, do you guys work with guys who advise you on how to make things authentic biker gang wise, or is it just totally fucking created? Uh, I think it's kind of half and half. So I do the technical advising for any of the military and law enforcement and, uh, and like border patrol stuff. So that was my side of it that I did. But when it comes to the, the MCs, a lot of these guys have already personal experiences and personal relationships with some of the MCs, not like, not in a sense where like they're part of it or anything, but you know, they did the research and they, they, they did their, you know, they, they talked to enough people to try and conceptualize it. But remember like my is is a, the spinoff of Sons of Anarchy who Son of, Sons of Anarchy itself did their own groundwork, right? And did yeah. their own, you know, uh, Kurt Sutter did a lot of work with, with Hell's Angels and getting to understand the culture of it, but he himself is an avid writer, right? Yeah. And so a lot of these guys understand it. Elgin himself, Elgin James is, it was, is the other co-writer creator of the show. You know, he has a history with friends who are in different MCs as well. So he was able to kind of pick their brains, but yeah. You know, the show itself isn't depicted of any specific MC, nor, nor would anyone want that to be because of the fact that there's so much drama involved in our show yeah. that is also con kind of contrived messaging for, for entertainment value. But yeah, there is a, a beautiful brotherhood that is also consistent of what, what we know to be real on yeah. uh, the MCs and as well as what we created on the show. Do you guys have uh, r actual writers that work with you guys uh or how, how does the actual riding riding like all, riding the motorcycle yeah yeah, yeah. Is it so like all stunts or we couldn't we couldn't get the job unless we knew how to ride oh no shit yeah they said so it's actually you guys riding in some of the stuff for part of it yeah you know what happens is if we can ride we will ride if it's unsafe to ride then we won't ride you know we'll get stunt doubles and that's kind of we're actors we're not we're not motorcycle enthusiasts you know some some guys are on the show yeah. but if it constituted us doing any kind of stunt, obviously stunts do it. If it constituted us doing anything kind of like uh, high speeds, uh, stunts will do it. But if it if it's just us kind of catching B roll of us rolling as a group, it was us. Did yeah. any of did any of the actual actors do any of their own stunts? Any, any Tom Cruises in the? Yeah, yeah, we we all will do what we're allowed to do, and there's okay. sometimes where it just wasn't feasible, yeah. right? So like. There's scenes where like, hey, we need to knock out two scenes at once. This one's a writing scene. Let's just hire the stunt guys to do that. And it's not a stunt. It's just they're just writing because we don't have the time to film that as well as this scene. I gotcha. So that'll happen a lot of the time. Yeah. Stuff like you can pay stunts a lot less than you'll pay us. Our day rates are expensive. Theirs aren't as much. And so if you pay them to do like the commercial versions of just writing and this and that and a lot of camera shots in this angle, what's well, cheaper as a production to, to use that budget than to hire us. Yeah, so you. there's things like that. Um, when it comes to like fights, most of us do our own stuff. Yeah. Yeah. What uh, what bike did you have? I had the Street Glide. Yeah. Are they all Harleys or do you some all have Indians? Uh, no, they were all Harleys for RMC. Yeah. 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 Uh, do you ride yourself? I did for a while. I sold my bike. Yeah. yeah. Had a buddy go down and end up kind of mess with my head a little bit. And so. Yeah. Oh, that's tough. I mean, it's a. That's a whole different culture for sure. I mean, uh, I want to get one. I want to yeah. get one again, but we'll see. Yeah. I just well, moved to Texas, so it's better weather here. There, there's a lot of, I mean, I've been riding for, for a number of years now, and uh, yeah, I mean, I fucking love it. But uh, yeah, if you if you want to get back into it, uh, I got you covered. So, yeah. Yeah, if you ever want to go ride it, <laughs> I, I you're I'll ride with so, you. Yeah, I got, I got plen plenty of options. So um, anything else from the show that, that would either surprise people or, 
that maybe is unexpected. I mean, it, to me, like any, any kind of behind the scenes stuff is always fascinating. You know, the show was, it was cool, man. Like, I think we did six years together. I watched some of these guys, their kids go from junior high to high school to college. You know what I mean? Like we're, we're so connected whether we'd like to be or not. Right. We all have pretty good relationships. Not, not all of them are great, but either way, we're all, we're all connected in some kind of brother, just like a unit would be. It was no different than being on a team. Yeah. It's no different because we're all, we all have a mission is to make the show great. Right. We all have our specific skill set, right. We all have our, our character that we have to play. And it's the same as like a saw gunner being a saw gunner, a grenadier being a grenadier, a team leader being a team leader. It was no different, you know. And and for for veterans who ever want to get into acting, it's probably the most comfortable space to get into in the fact of there's a hierarchy, and as soon as you understand it, you know exactly your place. Yeah. And on the other side of it is me as an actor. Uh, it was it was very therapeutic to be able to do this character in itself because to be a part of a brotherhood again was nice. Yeah. It felt like a military unit, you know. To be to be a part of the dynamics of that was was super cool. But as well as being able to have an influence in the writing to make sure that the because my character was a veteran who struggled post traumatic stress, and so it was really cool to be able to play that for the masses who watch the show and the fans to see a veteran uh, playing a veteran who was struggling with post-traumatic stress, which I, I I was just super blessed to be able to do that for like the fans of the show. And also all the veterans who watch the show and was like, man, I really relate to that character. Like, good man, because it's cool to be able to, to be a voice for those who, who feel sometimes they don't have that. Yeah, man, that's awesome. I love, love to hear that from a writing uh, perspective. Is there any, um, pull or influence that you guys as actors have storyline wise? Like, to me, it was always frustrating, especially like with Sons of Anarchy, like certain characters would, would get killed or, yeah. and you're like, what? Fuck. You know, like, yeah. it's like, do you guys have any, <laughs> I mean, obviously you want to keep working. No. Yeah. 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 It, it, for sure. Like it depends on who the producer of the show is and who the writers are, right? The creators of the show really kind of orchestrate how the environment is. It's just like a platoon chart would kind of create the environment of the platoon. The same is for, for on set. And there's some creators that won't allow you to have an opinion because it's their voice, their opinion, their, their, their writing. Cool. Then you do what they say. And there's some creators that are like, Hey, you know, open to that dialogue. And if they're open to that dialogue, well, that's your chance to kind of give them your opinion. And, uh, you know, I know Sons of Anarchy has, you know, Kurt Sutter has the reputation of being very harsh with people who, who, who have an opinion and question his writing because he's very passionate about what he does. And he's, I mean, he's been successful at it, you know? And so, uh, as well as like on our show, you know, you can go to Elgin and say, hey, man, I would really th- I think it'd be cool to see this. And he would say yes or no. Right. And that's cool to be able to have that as well. So yeah. everyone kind of runs their ship their way. Uh, I find it to be I like the version where I have I'm allowed to have a little bit of input. But at the same time, if you're paying me and you want me to shut my fucking mouth, I'll go do the acting because I'm an actor. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. But if I have control the reins of a, of a show, I would love to hear their feedback and what they think, you know, yeah. but. You know, in the end of the day, the creator has a vision that goes from here all the way to here. He thinks, you know, 10 episodes. He thinks probably 10 seasons. And yeah. sometimes we're thinking just current. Yeah. And so it might not you know, go in line with what his vision is. And so we were very fortunate to be able to do that. My yeah. character was able to kind of be manifested a little bit more molded into the veteran guy and veteran storyline because I asked for that. Yeah. Could, could a scenario exist where, like, let's say the writers or creators decide that they want a character to be killed? Mm-hmm. And basically the entire acting staff is like, no, like we, like 
what do we have to do to not have this guy? Like, is that, could that ever happen? Yeah, I could see that could happen. I could see that could happen. But in the end of the day, there's people who, who sign those checks. We'll have the end, end say, right? So like, for instance, if you do my show, who owns my show? Disney. Disney was the top dog of our show. Then you Which got crazy. Right. And then you got <laughs> Fox 20, right? And then you have, uh, it's FX, right? Who's also in the FX world, right? So, so there's, now there's three parties involved of like ide- ideologies of the show and hopefully it goes in the way that it makes everyone happy. And so like if Elgin said, hey, I'm really thinking about killing this character off and Disney said, I don't know. We have really good numbers from the statistics that we, whatever they do, right? Yeah. They're I, that involved? They're involved enough. Yeah. 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 If Elgin created a storyline that they weren't happy with, they would let them know. No shit. They would let them know. Yeah. yeah. Because because it's, you, we have to remember they're, they're funding the party. You know yeah. what I mean? But at the same time, like I said, like there's people who get killed off the shows because they rub people the wrong way. Oh, wow. Right? Right. Like like it, it, someone who's being abrasive on a team, you can kick them out of the team. It's the same kind of thing, man. If someone's causing too much too much issues on the show or wants out for some reason or found another job and is like, you know, kill me off. I don't want to be here no more. Toxic environment. That, that could happen. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So there's a lot a lot of behind the scenes shit. There's a t- there's a ton. Yeah. There's a ton. How much of it is? Uh, so, well, I mean, I, I I probably already know the answer. Like, there's a lot of politics yeah. where, like, kind of like what you said. I mean, are there guys that are that are kiss asses to the creators and writers and, and trying to? There's a lot of that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the whole thing is is it's, it's, a it's all about relationships you build, man. Yeah. You know, or you burn. Yeah. And you know that kind of that can dictate your career from yeah. that point on. Yeah. And that you know, I I did my best to just kind of be who I am. Like I can get along with everybody. I'll smile, wave. I'll make you laugh here and there. Uh, I try not to piss off anyone, but if I feel strongly about something, I'll definitely pull someone aside and say, "Hey, man, here's how I feel about that." You know yeah. what I mean? So on and so forth. And yeah. you know, I, I've had a career decent so far. Hopefully, it stays that way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Was there one thing that stands out as being the most uh, over sensationalized in that show? Uh, what do you mean? Like uh, something that's just not accurate? Like yeah, it's so over Hollywooded. I think the whole cartel storyline of our show was a little far-fetched. Yeah. And just because I'm, I'm, I'm loosely connected to understanding how those work. I don't, I'm really not like majorly focused on them, even in my personal life of, of writing that book, but it felt like their story, that storyline was so far from reality that I was just like, Oh, okay, whatever. Did you ever communicate that to the creators and, no, because I didn't feel like it was my place. Yeah. You know, I think by the time I became a writer on the show, this th- this whole thing has already happened. Yeah. I, I, I ain't stopping the brakes on that yeah. anymore. You the know? toothpaste is out of the tube. Right. So yeah. for me, it's more like if I create a show down the road, how I would try and do it different. Gotcha. Any Anything in the works? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, of course it yeah, is. Absolutely. <laughs> you want to talk about it or is it under- no, 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 I can't do it. Uh, all right. So where, where did deciding to write the book come into both during your career? Like, was there a, an aha moment of like, I need to write a fucking book? No, you know, I've always felt like the, I've always felt like the border patrol was underrepresented from the beginning, even when I was there, you know, being a guy, like I said, learning it from someone and be like, man, I don't know shit about the career field. I've always felt like it was a, it was a career that wasn't spoken about or even explained very often. I've seen a couple movies on it. Still didn't give me any kind of like the you know the the real you know the nuts and bolts of what the what the career field is. Uh, and so doing it personally, I've always wanted to write a book, you know. And and so as I'm doing it, I'm like, man, this would be really cool to to do a book about this. How would I do it? Uh, by the time 
that all passed my brains and I'm in acting and focusing on that. I started watching a lot of the political, the politicization of the border patrol and especially the career of border patrol agents. Right. And, and them getting demonized. Like it's crazy to me to watch it. And I really, I developed kind of, kind of a little bit of a platform. You know, I, can, I have a little bit of a voice from, you know, the years of being on my ends. I have a decent social media following, not like great, but good enough that I felt, well, I can do my part in, in hopefully helping the morale of the border patrol, but also uh, educating others on what the career field is and what it's about so that, you know, maybe you can, you know, I think, I think educating people is how we kind of create less of this divisive kind of nature we have currently right now. We're kind of divided country. And I think when people understand the border patrol, I think it should, it should mitigate that a little bit because once you understand the career field, it's hard to kind of demonize what they do. Yeah. And so I decided to fucking write a book. Yeah. What, uh, how would you synopsize your book? Is it is it a one hundred and one as to what the border patrol is and how they do it? Yeah, it's it's a little bit more than that, and it was kind of hard to kind of create like what how I wanted to do this. You know, for me, it was like let me tell my story. Let me tell my story as a border patrol agent going from the beginning to the end of my career, and in that, tell stories that highlight what the career field does, also highlight what immigration policy is and understand who creates that and things, so on and so forth kind of thing. So I did my best to educate people on the nuances of immigration itself and currently in our society, as well as the nuances of the career field itself and how it's managed and how it works. And so, and then I highlighted the special operations because I felt like it's very important to give them a name and give them a face that, that hasn't been really talked about too, too publicly in hopes that, you know, this book should educate people. This book should hopefully motivate people to join the career field of it, especially veterans. Uh, this book hopefully should boost the morale of border agents to see that they have a voice and to, to someone that's actually telling their, the true story of what the career field looks like. Yeah. Well, um, normally I, you know, will have read significant portions or the book in its entirety since I got it this morning. Yeah. I'm going kind of into the blind, well, completely into the blind, but um, from from a, we'll say a lay person that, that maybe, you know, is a U.S. citizen that that's on the fence, you know, they yeah. they hear a lot of stuff on the border. They, they see all the headlines. There's, you know, two pretty polarizing positions mm-hmm. as to what we should do, what we should not do. How, how does your book talk to them? Yeah, it actually, the way the book is written is to hopefully explain both sides of that argument and the way I, the way I essentially break it down. And I think, I think both sides of the argument have value, right? And they both, I think, are arguing rightfully on the topic that they feel near and dear about, but they're forgetting the other side of the argument. And so when you talk about immigration, what people don't think about is there's two coins to that. Our issue with the immig- in, on the border is not just an immigration issue. It's also a homeland security issue. Homeland security obviously derived from 9-11, now how, how we implement our security to our country. And so there's people like, oh, my goodness, the humanitarian mission that's happening, we need to help them. Yes. But as well as we want to help them, but how do we also continue to have homeland security? Right? How do we secure our border and making sure that as we help them, we're still securing, we're still making sure that we're safe? That's what's missing. The argument of we need to help them, and then the argument of we need to keep them safe, you have guys that put the wall up, just build it. Cool, got it. Immigration, we need to help them. Cool, got it. But how do we do both is really the answer, right? Yeah. And how do we do it both and justify what we're trying to do is, one, we're a nation that always that, that's based on immigration, right? We will always have immigration. 
We'll always allow people to come to this country to reap the benefits in, uh, of what we have. But we'll always have a system in place because there's always been a system, right? Until way back in the day, there wasn't. But I'm saying the system that's in place is what we've, what I guess our government officials feel is the best situation to, to I guess, best policies in place. But we also also have to cater to our own security, our safety. And so you have sides of it that are going, hey, security, the other side is going immigration, but they're not realizing they both have to please both parties or else it doesn't work mm-hmm. or else it's, it's, or else it's, or else you have no country. Too much security, you, this is, this becomes North Korea, right? Too much immigration, we lose our country. There is no country. So how do we find both? That's the problem. That's what we're not getting. Like you, we don't want to be someone who's so close all the borders, put walls up, don't let anyone in, because then we're no different than like North Korea, right? Then it's like, well, man, that's kind of crazy. That's like the dial turned too far, right? Then the other side is like, you just let everyone in. Well, then we don't even have a border, which is that's a, that's that in itself is ignorant thought because like every country has border policies, and we're one of the more lenient ones, or more, one of the more. Um, I guess sought out ones that we 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 accept a lot of illegal and we accept a lot of immigration, right? And so we're one of the most um, talked about, but yet we're not the most strict yeah. and we're not the most lenient. So tomorrow morning, uh, Biden says, "Vince, you are the DHS director. <laughs> what, what are you gonna? How are you gonna fix it?" It's tough, man. So you know, I, I see immigration like a seven layer cake, and I've said it for years. But one thing is we have to address why these individuals are leaving their countries, right? So how can we uh, diplomatically uh, help those countries thrive and flourish so that their people don't want to come to us? That's one. Like, why not? Why wouldn't we just help them? Why wouldn't we educate That's That's a big one that most people don't probably think about. Like, we have to help them get those countries in a place where their people are thriving and they're making money and they're able to eat, right? They don't need to run to America to try and find any kind of financial stability. For a quick interjection for the the devil's advocate position that would say, why don't we, you know, our country's fucked up enough. Like, why are we going to help other countries try to flourish when we have, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of people that are homeless veterans yeah. that are killing themselves, you know, because when you don't, you have 11,000 people come to the border anyways. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's like, so either way it, it hurts us no matter what, like yeah. this current situation is hurting us. The only way to try and fix that now is like, well, we can't, we can't fix the past. We can just go towards the future. The only way, if we can help them first, not first, but if we can help them diplomatically find a way to keep their people happy, comfortable, and have a successful country, well, then we won't have to worry so much about people coming to us. Mm-hmm. Two, we have to have, and this is like, that's the immigration, like that's the nice guy immigration, what we should try and do is educate and as well as help. Uh, two, you have a lot of human trafficking issues, right? There are people that are telling them to come across and, and pay us and we'll do it this way because... Because so on and so forth. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But so those trafficking organizations are making money. This is a business. They make a lot of money in this business. So we have to educate others to understand like they're being manipulated to believe this is the only way or the right way. It is the fastest way. But this way could also get you killed. 240-something just in Del Rio sector alone, right? That's not including people who drowned, right? And so, so on and so forth. That's not the safest way. And so they are being manipulated and told this is the way to do it, right? And then third, deterrence, or there has to be a bigger repercussion for those who come across illegally, right? So think of it, you have a front door, I have a front door. We, we pick and choose how we want to secure our house, right? So we choose how much security we want to hold, and actually we, we determine who we want to let into our house and how long they're allowed to stay, 
right? So if someone comes over to a party, you're not going to let the dude stay and just camp out for the next two weeks. No, he's like, it's, it's expected for him to stay for a time of the party and then go home. Same for us is we have a front door and we expect you to use that front door. That's the legal parameters of that. And so if you don't use that front door, well, then you're breaking the law. Anyone who enters or exits the country has to do it at a port of entry or else you've broken the law. That's called Title 8, 1325. And that is just entering illegally into the United States without using the port of entry. So what, what do you do with that person? Currently, right now, if they've entered illegally... Right now, what would I personally do? Yeah, like I mean, they would have to have repercussions. So they would go. They would go to jail. They would. They here? would absolutely. Yeah. They would go to jail. So if you have no repercussion, right? They don't go to jail. Then you just ship them back. All they do is do it again. Well, then this is easy. We'll just keep doing it, and we're still expending resources, right? People talk about resources. The economic constraints on flying people is going to be just as expensive as just holding them and paying three, you know, three hots in a cot kind of thing. So we hold them for a certain amount of time. And they know they're punished. And then also what happens, and what used to be the policy, right? Title actually used to do this. They used to bring them in. You go to jail for a certain amount of time. First time is less, more lenient. Second time is more severe. So it'd be like 30 days. And the next time is one year. The next time could be five years. So every time you get apprehended, it's tacking on years because you're not learning that you can't just do that. That's what we should be doing because what happens if you don't do that, it's what you have now. Right now what's happening is that they come across and they get processed. People forget, don't realize they're getting processed. They are getting processed through a system like IDENTS, right? They're getting the fingerprints rolled, they're getting identification, all that shit. And then they're getting let go to an NTA called the Notice to Appear, which essentially is their papers to say, go into America, do whatever you said you were going to do, but make sure you come back in this date so the immigration judge can make a determination on your case. No one ever shows up for that. So they're released into the, to the world, right, into the nation. And so why is that? Well, it's because we're so overwhelmed. There's nothing put in place in our system that is to hold tens of thousands of people and feed them. And like the humanitarian side would be to feed them, give them medical attention, right? Okay, so what are we supposed to do? Well, right now what's in place is nothing. There is nothing in place for that. We process them just to make sure we document who comes across and then we are just releasing them because there's no way of housing them. What we should do, right, is if, 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 we, if we, the reason why it's like that now is because that's what we've been doing and the message gets sent south. The message gets sent all over the world saying, hey, right now, if you go to America, you get in. And soon, as long as that message continues to get told, they'll continue to come. So going back to the, the repercussions, so for the people that, are, that aren't using the front door who are coming in illegally, so your, your position is 30 days in jail um, as kind of a first punishment. At the, at the end of that 30 days, then what? You kick them loose? Then, you, then you, you report, uh, sorry, you deport them back to their country, country of origin. Um, I guess, you know, my, my first thought is that, you know, in, in recent, you know, in the last two years, I mean, it's not uncommon for there to be 10,000 people a day Right. Coming across the border, which obviously like there's nowhere near enough prison space to accommodate that. Yeah. Um, then you've also got what if they're minors, you know, yeah. if they're, you know, women with medical conditions or even men with me medical conditions, you know, got, you know, people with significant issues, what, what have you. Uh, to me, like there, there are so many variables that, that makes almost every this is what we should do scenario unrealistic right or or 
like it just doesn't make sense that, that it's even possible. That's the hard part. Like, so like that dial, like either you do too much security or too much immigration, right? Trying to find that balance. It's going to continue to always go left to right. It's, it's a dynamic scenario that will always have to kind of change and shift with, with what we have. In every scenario currently, if there's kids and women involved, that's called a family unit. And they, they, they handle that a certain way, right? And, and that's going to continue to be a problem. That's part of the humanitarian side, right? It, it's, hard, it's hard to fix this, right? But there is, there is answers that we can slow it down. And we're just not doing that. And, and not saying that, I don't know who's to blame for it. I'm just saying there's nothing in our system that's currently set up to take on 10,000 people. Like, how the fuck do you do that, right? Yeah, you can't. I right. mean, to me, the the remain in Mexico or remain in the country of origin or the, the contiguous country to wherever you're fleeing from. If, um, if, if that's your claim is, is asylum, you yeah. know, whether it's political or, or what have you, is that let's say it's from, you know, country a, well, if you go to country B, then you have to stay in country B and, and, and apply for, uh, seeking asylum to the United States from there. And you have to wait, there until a, a, right. a judge can review your case. That, to me, at least makes way more sense than than trying to deal with tens of thousands of people a day. Right, but all ten thousand of those are claiming asylum too. Yeah. That, that, well, that's the crazy part. Is like, is it really asylum? Yeah. Well, so I mean, to me, like, it, it's an incentive thing. Is that if if you remove the incentive to come here and say, okay, like, if if asylum is truly what you're seeking, like, if that's really the case, then you'll be okay with living in where you know country yeah. B until you can do that because that's still better than country A. Yeah. That's a, we've incentivized coming to America Yeah, and we've incentivized it so much that like it's very attractive to anyone that that's not yeah. from here. So, I mean, to me, like the, the short, simple answer is, and not that, not that any of it is simple, but um, like step one is, is you've got to, you know, using like the flooding bathroom analogy is that like if, if your toilet's overflowing, like to me, what we're doing right now is trying to mop that up while it's still overflowing. Right. Yeah, you know, it's like well, you got to shut the fucking water off first. Yeah. Like and, until you do that, everything else that you're doing is a shell game of of just moving people around. Yeah. I, I, so I guess you know the the next question would be from from the front door immigration standpoint. I don't disagree, and I think most people uh, are on board with allowing immigrants to come here from all over the world. Uh, you know, on a regular basis and, and, and agreed that's what has made our country as good as it has is drawing from the collective planet, uh, you know, its best. To me, I'm curious to get your take. Is there a number that, that you think, um, you know, and having spent time on the border and having written the book that, that makes sense to say there, there has to be a cap, right? Like you can't just say, yeah, we can take in a billion people a year. Like you can't. Yeah. Is there a number that you would, that you have come to the conclusion of that makes the most sense to say this is as many, this is how many people we should allow in in per year i don't I, I don't even consider myself like an immigration specialist i consider myself a the career of border patrol specialist i understand that career field and i know what they're dealing with daily you know like how many numbers i don't know how many people die i don't know you know how many people die how many can fit i don't i don't know um i know that what we have currently is resources are tapped i know people with good degrees are not getting jobs. I know, you know, I know what our current system has is we're already overwhelmed with, with who's here now yeah. and that bringing on more people, I don't see how we can do it and justify it and say that it's okay to do. I think it's tapping a lot of our resources and creating a lot more issues that I think the repercussions will be five years from now. You know, that's what I see. Like, I don't know 
what we should allow and what we shouldn't allow. I know that we shouldn't allow it in a way where we can't control it, and that's what's happening, right? Yeah. It's a, it's such an influx that the border agents are not working the border right now. Currently, they're actually processing, right? Because that's all you can do. Is like the only way you get them out of here is process them and hand them off to the next guy, yeah. right? Because border agents' job, in a sense, is all they do is apprehend and process and hand off to ICE. ICE then finds housing and then determines what they're going to do with them. So, like, at that point, for some reason now, it's such an influx that border trains are stuck processing, not guarding the borders. And then it's like, well, then well then that makes their job almost obsolete at the moment because they're so focused on processing how many the influx of immigration. Yeah. As a Border Patrol agent, do you think that our border, both north and south, I mean, you rarely hear about uh, the Canadian border, but... Do you think our borders should be secured in their entirety to where people just, you know, cannot just come across? Yeah, I, I mean, that's <laughs> to me, it's a, right. It's a ridiculous question. Yeah, I like, don't think it's ever. So when when you say everyone, if you ask people, do you want a secure border? I think everyone will say yes. I think there's it, people that would say no. They don't give a fuck. Yeah, you know? that, that you're right. Right. For, for the most part, we would say, yes, we believe in a secure border. And then you would say, what does that secure border look like to you? Yeah. And what you think and what I think is going to be stark different potentially, right? Yeah. The truth is we need to be able to have a border that, that we can manage. Uh, we need to be able to see, we need to be able to stop anyone that crosses over illegally. Yes. And so whatever we have to put in place, whatever we have to do to continue to stop illegal immigration from happening is what we should do. What do you think that is as a border patrol agent? Like, uh, what, what would it take? We need more. We need more agents. Right, we need more boots on ground. It's such a vast area, and you, know, you so you have twenty thousand people guarding the borders, right? But not at once, right? So there's three different shifts. Also, you have all the other admin positions. So, at any point across our border, we probably have fifty thousand. Yeah, exactly, a few thousand guarding our borders, and that's in one sector alone. Every shift is probably maybe 20, 20 people, right? Th maybe thirty, but you're talking two hundred miles worth of area. That that doesn't make sense, right? And so. There's already a lot of stuff in place, things like cameras, things like seismic meters, things like just agents, all the th tools we have. Uh, the wall, like people are so mad about the wall, but that's partly the reason why the wall was put up, right, is in areas that needed to be uh, an area where we can, I guess, funnel the traffic in a different direction. That wall doesn't stop everybody. People go over, people go under, people cut through it. It doesn't matter. But it is a form of deterrence, and it is a form of, like, slowing down the traffic. And so that does have value. And so, yes, there's areas that we need to continue to build the wall, or else why, would, why wouldn't you? I don't get. That would actually help the border agents be able to guard, protect more border or at least to observe more border. Then you have cameras in strategic areas. You have the seismic meters, so on and so forth. We just have to be better about that, right? We just have to put more boots on ground and more more technological advances to help us like stop that. Do you have uh, any thoughts or a position on utilizing National Guard or states National Guard forces, you know, or, or any type of military forces that's on the border? A, yeah, that's a hard one, man, because I've done both jobs, right? And the hard part about it is what, what people want to think the Border Patrol is, is probably an aggressive posture. Border Patrol's not. We're, we're the humanitarian mission that happens on the border. We save more lives. We, 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 we help more than we do hurt anything, right? And so... The problem is that the military's ROEs have always been taught to kind of be aggressive posture, and I think that can actually cause more issues. I don't know what they teach the National Guard. I hope they teach them that, like, it's such a passive posture when approaching. You know, if you watch all the videos right now, you don't see border agents have their rifle out or their pistol out, and they're walking aggressive posture. No, it's, it's holstered. They have their gloves on because they're going to apprehend and grab. 
right? Because what we do is we help them out of a river if they got in the river. Then we just put them into a truck. If they're showing any kind of aggression, well, then we'll go ahead and cuff them just for our safety and theirs, right? And so the posturing is very different. The rules of engagement are very different. And my fear is that that the military might not understand that, right? Because sometimes, like, the lack of educated understanding of what immigration is, I think a lot of people think that everyone coming across is aggressive posture. It's not. You know, a lot of these people coming across are just even if they are bad people that are not aggressive posture coming across those few that are, we have to fight a few that are, we put hands on, we, we use our use of force techniques. Right. But for the most part, they're coming across and they're seeking some kind of position here. They want to be here, whatever the case is. And so I think just the mentality alone is, is very different. And, and I'd be very cautious about doing that more because you're having a lot of those military personnel are having trouble too. They don't want to be on the border. That border culture is different. It's yeah. it's it's a deployment that none of them really want. And so uh, I feel like what we should do is just we need to hire more border agents who want to do that job, who expect to do that job, and know what they're getting into when they yeah. do that job. If you were in charge of, again, like let's say it's just securing the border, you know, the, the president says, hey, whoever it is, says we need a secure border, Vince, fucking figure it out. I don't care how you do it, just – shut the border down so that people can't come in as, yeah. as they want. Um, how would you accomplish that by, you know, cause to me, Hey, we need more, more border patrol agents. Okay. Check. We got those. Yeah. Now what though? Like now, yeah. now, now if you've got, let's say a, a mob of 8,000 people at mm -hmm. once storm the border and, and j are just fucking flooding across, yeah. like what posture are you taking at that point? Like, are, are you going to do whatever you have to, to keep them from coming? Or are you going to be like, well, fuck it. I don't want to <laughs> shoot them. So that's, that's the hard position you have to take. But, I, I mean, you have I, to decide something. Right? Have, yeah. I, I don't, it's, it is really hard to say that you're just going to engage on people who are coming across to try and seek a better life for, for their most part. It's hard to say. I wouldn't, I don't, I don't think I ever would. I'd have to put things in place that funnel them so we can have more control. It's just like in a prison. You have to funnel them through a one spot, one entry point, one exit point. I think we have to create that in a sense where it also doesn't feel like we're living in a surrounded by a cage, right? Because that feels uncomfortable as well as the freedom of our, our nation. It's, it's, the, it's the hardest conversation to ever have to try and figure out what the answer is. Part of it, like I said, I think we, we need to educate them to say, hey, you're being fooled. You're giving your money to an organization who's using you like, like mice, that needs to be had. We need to have that conversation. We need to have the countries who, who figure out those countries. We need to, like, it's, it, like I say, the seven-layer cake. A lot of layers need to be fixed before this could even happen because if you have 8,000 people crossing the border, we're not going to engage on them. That's, that's never going to happen, right, because it's, it's, not, it's, it's, in, it's inhumane to treat someone that way. So, I mean, again, I'm, I'm, it's my job to please, play devil's please. advocate a little bit. All right, so your house, a homeless guy shows yeah. up. You know, or 10 of them do. Right. And they decide, dude, I'm fucking starving. It's January in Dallas, which you'll find is colder yeah. than fucking Hollywood for sure. Uh, I'm fucking starving. My kids need to eat. We're coming in your fucking house. Right. Are but, they coming in? But I'm the president of my house, and I make my rules. Right. In, but, my, in my house, in my rules, if someone decides to enter my house, well, I'll, I'll engage them in the way that I was taught, right? Physical force of some, some sort. And if it comes to deadly force, if that need be, then so, so be it. That's my house. That is, I govern that world. Uh, for me to be the president of the United States and make, be the guy to make that choice, I don't, still don't know how I would even make that choice. It's a hard one to make. I would, I would start with maybe do I need a better perimeter in my house? Do I need better cameras in my house to identify them before they even walk to my front door? Right? That's what we're kind of doing, but there could be better. 
But that's the first thing. I can I can add cameras to my house. I can identify it. I can, I can gate my community so that no one walks in just to my front door already. At that point, I can observe from them and deter, 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 stand outside and posture with them, hopefully. And those are some of the things that we should be doing even more. It's the same exact idea. I just will unless someone puts a threat to my personal family, it's hard for me to say that I would engage them, right? 80, 80, uh, you know, 8,000 people coming across. I don't know how many people say, yeah, let's just engage them all and kill them. That's crazy. At the same time, I get that I, when you were saying my, you know, my, my, uh, my situation as my house in the border. Yeah. Cause I mean, micro macro, there isn't a difference, right? Like I know it's, it's way easier to say, well, this is my fucking house, but yeah. this is our country. Yeah. Like, and, and if, if you have no control and, and you don't know who's coming over, why they're yeah. there, what they have on them, you know, like it, it really isn't any different, you know, I mean, to, to make it more ambiguous of saying, okay, there's not 10 people that are flooding through your front door, but let's say they're homeless and they're in your yard and they won't leave. Yeah. Like, are you going to hand out sandwiches? Are you going to let them fucking hang out there for months at a time? Like, yeah. or, or until you get around to deciding whether or not you're going to help them out if they're asking for money or like, you know, again, to me, those, those are all, whether it's in, in the most micro environment of, of one household or the entire country is the yeah. fact is, is that your property lines are the border of your property yeah. and, and, it, and it really is no different. I'm not saying it's an easy decision because yeah. it's fucking not. I think know? that's why every president who's come across has only just skimmed the surface of immigration felt like yeah. they've made a change, but there hasn't nothing deep rooted has really been changed. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like Reagan was the one who, who implemented the, like allowed everyone who was, all right, if you're here already, then we're going to go ahead and grant you, you know, legal. Yeah. it's a, it's one of the hardest subjects we have and why it's so divisive because yeah. like emotionally it's hard to make that choice. Like, yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not trying to oversimplify it. I'm, I'm trying to provide as many, angles or positions that, that are out there as possible because I think, you know, they're, they're difficult decisions that have to be made. And, yeah. and if people don't, don't answer them or, or, you know, if it's never talked about, like, it's just going to be this hamster wheel that yeah. keeps going on. That's the, the hard thing I get is everyone's like, why wouldn't you just let them in? It's like, dude, because we can't, you can't just let, like, just because they want to be here, they just come here. Now, you know, you know what it takes for, for someone who is an illegal immigrant who comes across, say they do it legally, how long it takes for them to become a citizen. I know it's a long fucking time, yeah, like it could three be, years. It, it, no, it could be 12 years. Yeah, it's crazy. It could, so that's like that's what deters people from doing it the right way too sometimes yeah. that the process can take longer than what you expect. It's just, yeah. It could be take it could take 7, 10, 12 years. Yeah. And that's even someone who's from the UK. Yeah. Right, which is like – Wow, why would, it, why would it take so long? I don't know why. I don't yeah. know that process. Like I said, I'm a border patrol agent. I, yeah. don't, I don't understand that. But I know that's part of the reason why people would avoid doing it the right way is yeah. because the wrong way is getting them into country anyways. We're yeah. incentivizing them coming across. So, yeah. so yeah, I mean, to me, like in, in, in order of magnitude, like step one is you've got to disincentivize. You've got to make it to where, yes. just like with prison, right? It's like it, it's not worth trying to do it the wrong way because right. there's there's too many repercussions to me 30 days 90 days even a year in prison and then being let go to me wouldn't be enough of a deterrent if anything like if they're truly fleeing and they're in a place where like they're missing meals days at a time or whatever like prison in america would be better than fucking hanging out in yeah. mexico waiting to come over here so to like to me that that would further incentivize them i, I think as tough as it is like there there has to be enough measure put in place on our border 
to keep people from being able to come in mm-hmm. for the most part, obviously just like with drugs or guns or, or anything else, like there's going to be people that, like yeah. you can't make it so shut down. Yeah. I mean, for that matter, like North of Korea, there's people that escape, right. You know, like, exactly. you know, so, but, but, you know, have, have measures in place where it's, it's an anomaly for that to happen. Yeah. Like that, like that has to be step one until that's accomplished. Like nothing else really matters because, right there's thousands, tens of thousands of people streaming into the country that we have no idea who they are, where they're from or, yeah. or, or what they're carrying with them. I mean, and, it could be anything. Right. And that's the argument that, you know, the other side has would be like on the immigration side, they're like, why are you going to secure the borders? There's people that come here for seeking asylum. It's like, yeah, but there's, there's a process for it. And we can't even do that process if you don't allow us to do that fucking yeah. process. And so, yeah, we, we have to secure the border. We absolutely do. But that's the weirdest thing that everyone fought. Yeah. They fought putting a wall, which I know. Like again, I would ask those same people. Like, okay, let, let's just say that we're gonna we're gonna allow people that that seek asylum to come here freely. Like, do you have a number? Right. Like, are you saying that any like there there has to be a, a limit? Like, if you're saying that five billion people from all over the world, which I don't think that's a stretch. Yeah. Like there probably no, is 5 billion people that if they, if they could come here, if they had the means to get to the border would fucking do it. Like, yeah, would it, you let those people in? It, it's, it's crazy. The other side of this argument that people always, I, I just don't understand it because they, they want to bring them in. Like what well, you don't, you don't want them to come into your country. And like, no, it's, I don't, I don't f- feel that way. I just feel like, what are you, what are we going to do with the resources of it? Right. Like, yeah, I, I don't see how you already know how many how many people we have homeless. Yeah, there's fucking millions of them. Millions of homeless. Yeah. And and I don't understand. You're gonna come here to a country and and, and then do what? I don't yeah. understand. I feel like it's harder for us to take them in and, and actually give them the life that they're thinking they're gonna get. Like no, for sure it is. And and you know again to, I mean I I have mixed feelings on all of it, and and I'm not naive to think that any of the decisions made are easy or simple. Or without consequence, they they all uh, you know check all of those boxes. But for anybody that that says you know yeah like we should you know we're a country of immigrants we should let people in like if if you say that you have to have a number right like you, you can't just say well I don't know what it is it's like well then you can't have that fucking position yeah like, no I love that I never, I've never even thought of that you know it's like you you have to have some some cap yeah you know and and if you don't know then you shouldn't say that, you know, like, yeah, it's, it's crazy. So let me, let me educate on something that's kind of crazy. So everyone's talking about like money and that when they build a wall, that was going to cost so much money. And then they talk about Ukraine, but like what immigration costs us currently is through the fucking roof. I know. So just one process center and Eagle pass can house 1500 people. That's they process them to go to ICE and everything else, right? So all these people that are coming across right now, they're trying to do the same thing. They're trying to put them to the processing center. That processing center costs twenty four million a day. Dude, that's absurd. A day. So that's one one place. One, and we have I think six or seven of them, right? Yeah. One, and so in the end of the year, one of them would cost them like eight billion. So you're talking one, and we have about six of them. And so when people talk about like the money in Ukraine, like yeah, that's a concern. But like, how much money are we spending on immigration right yeah. now? Oh, it's silly. I mean, and not to mention the fact that from a school system standpoint, like having, you know, flooding kids that don't speak English, you know, that, mm-hmm. that you know, accommodations are having to be made that, that are taking away from U.S. citizens. Like to me, it, it's a fucking mess. And it seems like nobody 
either has a good solution or has the balls to say, hey, these are tough decisions. This is what it's going to take. Yeah. I mean, no different than, you know, post 9-11 or World War II or any of the times where our country has been faced with a shit sandwich and had to say, these aren't easy decisions. These are tough calls. Like, there is no right answer. It's the lesser of two evils. But this is what we have to do to fix this fucking problem, and it's yeah. going to be tough. Like, I mean, to me, we, we need somebody who who can, one, have the spine and fortitude to, to enact that. Two, has the balls to actually say it. And three, uh, actually has the competency to execute it. Yeah. You know, uh, I don't know who that fucking guy is, but uh, but that's what's necessary. And um, I, I guess I'll, I'll turn it back over to you. I, I'm not trying to steal. The no, I think you. I think you're 100 percent correct. I think it's it's it is the hardest argument that we have currently in our society that finding the right answer for that is, is a challenge yeah. and to, to please both sides of it, of immigration and still be considered United States of America's welcoming of immigrants. We have to find that answer. And what's that answer? I, I have no idea if everything I've, I've put on the table is just like, well, this could work. This could work. I don't fucking know. You know what I mean? I don't think anyone does. And the reason we're writing the book was to hopefully educate people on what is is what is now. Like yeah. here's what's now, yeah. just so you know and why. You know, and hopefully that's enough to it brings people up to that self of understanding what it is. Because I don't even think people have that. Instead, they're just listening to the news. They're yeah. listening to like whatever. These, like understand what we have first before we can even try and make a change. Because I think a lot of our political leaders don't know that either. Yeah. They don't really know the immigration policies that are in place or or why it is what it is. Like. Yeah. That's the hardest part that we live in. We live in a society that doesn't understand it. And rightfully so, if that's not the career field, fine. But if you're going to argue it and you want to be so divisive about it, maybe you shouldn't understand it a little bit deeper. Yeah, no, I agree. I think uh, most most of the people that are in positions to make high-level decisions on it are are really uneducated and fucking ignorant about what, what's actually going on and and what it would take to, to fix certain problems. Um, do you think that uh, the race of of an agent themselves plays a role in their empathy or lack thereof? No, I think the Border Patrol actually has more Hispanics uh, in the career field than any other race. And I mean, like, do you do you think that the fucking corn-fed white guys are less empathetic than... Uh, oh, uh, no. I think the people that... I think the, the career field of Border Patrol is like the most patriotic career field because they know their job. They're the first line of defense against any terrorist act. The first line of defense. So they believe in this country. That's why they're doing it. They believe in the country and what it gives them, like the Constitution. So I think it's so they're so patriot, patriotic about this country. That's why they do that job. They believe in it. And I don't think it's a it's a race thing. I think a lot of people want to use the race card. They want to say portraits are racist. They want to, it doesn't matter. They want to do that because it's the easy argument, but it's not valid. It's complete BS. Most of the, most of the white guys on the border, they meet a Hispanic woman, they they marry yeah. them. You know what I mean? Like, like you yeah. know, so it's like it's not a racist thing, but yeah. people want to turn it to that because that's the easiest argument. Well, yeah, I mean, because in that same vein, I've I've heard you know for people who are, are you know, let's say. Uh, hypothetically, it's a it's a fucking white guy saying, "I think the border should be shut down, and, and we we can't allow blah blah blah." Yeah, all of a sudden you're racist. Well, that or it's you know I'll bet if if it was you know like let's take me as an example if if I'm a border patrol agent or not even an agent if if I'm the guy taking this staunch yeah. you know you've got to shut everything down and not let a single person in. Well, you know what if uh, it was all light skinned, blue eyed 
you know, Northern Europeans streaming across the border, then would you turn them away and, and think that, you know, that yeah. none of them should come if they didn't look like, you know, if they looked exactly like you and had your same hair, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, to me, that wouldn't fucking matter, yeah. you know, but, but that's an argument that gets thrown out there a lot is that, you know, it, it's, it's people that, you know, see people that don't look like them coming there and they think they're ruining the country or whatever. Yeah. And it's, to me, like, again, I agree. It's such a chicken shit, cheap shot. Yeah. You know, it's like trying to take the legs out from an argument because you you can't argue or or articulate a better position, and you right. just have to play a race card. But that gets thrown out there a lot, and it's fucking frustrating. Yeah, it's frustrating because because then you feel like you can't even speak on it because everything you say is considered going to be pulled into the racist argument. Yeah. yeah, I know it's a tough one. Trust me, look at I'm Hispanic, man. I get talk shit all the time about the subject because I am Hispanic. I'm turning my back on my people is what people say, and it's like. Yeah. It's hard to even explain that. It's hard to even answer. Like, if you think that, well, then you're so you're you're so naive to understanding this whole thing and what it what it is, yeah. right? So, I mean, to me, if 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 you brought that argument and said, okay, well, what what if all of the people that that you're saying we should let in, like for people that are saying right. that you're turning your back, what if they were blue eyed, brown haired, northern European streaming across? Would you would you feel the same way? Yeah, I mean, I, I would maybe ask them that. Right. You know. See, see what they say. I'd be curious, yeah. you know, like, cause if they're like, yeah, no, I still think they should come across. Okay. I believe you then you <laughs> know, to me, at least be consistent. Right. You know, but, um, man, so I guess going back to both the book and, and just kind of your position on, on writing it and, and what your intended uh, impact of it, uh, what else, uh, could you bring up if there is anything else that, uh, no, man, like the goal is to hopefully, you know, Explain the career field that people don't understand. The career field that's been demonized about a horse whipping that was not true. The the career field that just continues to, to make them look like they're you know concentration camps and things like that. It's like it, it's all false. It's all just narratives. It's all political arguments left and right. It doesn't matter who it is. The career field has nothing to do with that. It's the most humanitarian career field that we have in America, it saves more lives and it stops more drugs or apprehends more drugs than any other agency in the nation. So I'm just tired of it getting demonized. And so I wanted to just kind of explain the career field of it. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, to getting into it. I hope you'll sign it before you leave. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, or I hope I can keep it, I guess. Yeah, it's yours. Dude, it's yours. Yeah, right. Um, what, uh, so in terms of some of the other projects, um, you got light the fuse. Uh, you got the Vinnie Rock podcast. Uh, yeah. Tell tell everybody a little bit about that and where they can find it. Yeah, the light the fuse is we we do men's uh, wellness retreats. Essentially, you know, I've gone through a long list of different modalities to kind of heal a lot of past traumas and and just find just like normalcy in life and be happy with myself. And so I created a, a retreat that kind of constitutes a lot of the people in my life who've made impacts and guys who are like teach stoicism, guys who teach an EMDR a type of therapy. Um, we do some plant medicine, non-psychedelic plant medicine, um, you know, Wim Hof methods, things like that. So it's just kind of a long list of, of different modalities they could experience in that weekend and just kind of create a community around them of learning and growing. And so it's been very successful. We've been super happy with it. That's um, awesome, man. What, uh, in terms of the events, I know you had the one here fairly recently. Are, are you looking to do like an annual thing or multi? Yeah, we want to do. So we're 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 probably setting one up in California for for um, a group that's asking for it and another nonprofit as well asking for. So we could probably do a couple of them. But the ones I want to host here, I want to do once or twice a year at least for sure because yeah. I like them being near my house. Yeah. But um, you know, there's people that want things all over, so we're willing to just pick up shop and set it up where they're at. 
Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, Vinny Rock Podcast, are you doing that? Yeah, uh, your we, local? we just launched it up. Yeah, I just launched it. I built a studio in my house, and so just right now I'm inviting a bunch of friends and yeah. and family to come talk on the on the podcast, guys who, again, who've just impacted my life in some way, shape, or form. Uh, I had a, had a mind on last one. I have uh, David Vibora coming out. He's an NFL football player. Oh, nice. Former NFL football player, just an incredible guy. Talks about wellness. And, uh, you know, just several, several guys in my world who just made impacts and I want to kind of share them with the world. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome, man. Um, in terms of, uh, any Hollywood projects, I know you got to be kind of tight lipped on, on, uh, any stuff like that, but are, are there any things that you can mention of things that you have? Uh, I'm working on trying to convert this book into some kind of TV show concept. Um, and a couple other scripts that I've put together that we're, we're kind of pitching, and uh, we're just waiting for the next project. I'm waiting for the yeah. call. You know, yeah. I, I just did a audition for a, for a, a, a it's a book that was turned into a screen screenplay um, written by some of my friends that are in Utah. So we're probably going to film that here soon yeah. and then just continue on, just find a way to create new stuff. Is the, uh, I know the writer strike seems like it's coming or the writer's strikes come to an end. The actor's strike is still going. Um should that all get cleared up, are there things that you have that are ready to go as soon as that happens? Yeah, I had two projects that I'm waiting to hear back from. Sometimes the strike itself could kind of change them. So I'm waiting to hear if, you know, I was getting looked at for a couple of lead spots. So hopefully nothing changes. Hopefully we're still back on, on track and jump right into it. Yeah. Are there um, things that, uh, that you want to do, like uh, big ticket items other than getting the book into uh, – into some sort of series like you know the five-year ten-year plan is there is there bucket list items that you want to check off i want to i want to produce shows i want to be a showrunner and you know i want to be able to tell stories that i think deserve to be told right now i'm working with a group that's trying to get the roy benavides story out oh nice and uh that's like bucket list one right there if i can help with get the roy benavides story out then then yeah, that'd be beautiful. Yeah. But continue to do that. I want to continue to be a storyteller. And so hopefully that means 20, 30 years of doing this. Yeah. Awesome, man. I love what you're doing. Uh, keep up the damn good work. Uh, we'll see you at church on Sunday. Maybe we'll ride, ride motorcycles. <laughs> oh to, uh, man. I got to tell my wife. Yeah, that'd be awesome. <laughs> uh, we do have a parting gift here for you. Uh, all, all guests of the show receive this, uh, courtesy of John Johnston and champion choice silver. Awesome! Thank you so much. Point there, and then if you if you Damn. wouldn't mind showing what's in the black box, uh, also to, <laughs> now that you're in Texas, yes. Yeah, so you got the uh, that's got the rad. Big, big shit kicker belt buckle. I'm gonna have to go. I'm gonna have to go change my belts now. Yeah, hell yeah. Well, I guess actually before we close out, what uh, what was the purpose of the, of the move for Texas? What what drove that? We, uh, you know, my wife's originally from Texas. Oh, okay. And just want to get closer back to family. Yeah. Um, you know, for me, Dallas is a big veteran friendly uh area and i do a lot of veteran work for for mental health and wellness so yeah. uh it just kind of felt like i should come back home you yeah. know go back to where i can get close to family and back to the roots and and as well as like closer to a veteran community that you know is near and dear to my heart yeah amen yeah. awesome stuff man well thank you for taking the time to, to come it's uh, great to finally meet you i know we've been talking <laughs> yeah, about doing it for, for a while years. so uh, to the listener, I hope you enjoyed it. If you didn't, you know you get to choke yourself. Uh, I do appreciate the support. Uh, show after show, uh, you give us the ability to bring us such great guests, um, such as Vince. So um, thank you for everything, um, and uh, I appreciate yep. you taking the time. Thank you. Thank you for coming, and until next time, this is Mike Drop.